Welcome to the New to Jesus podcast, where we find foundational truths to help you take your first steps in your walk with Christ. Hey, this is Dan Bergman. Welcome back to the New to Jesus podcast, episode number four. Now we're going to look at John chapter four in this episode. We've already seen Jesus's first miracle at the wedding in Cana in John chapter two, and the first Passover of Jesus's earthly ministry at the end of John chapter two. We've also examined Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus about being born again in our last episode, John 3. We've seen that man is condemned already due to unbelief and how we are to decrease so he, Jesus, can increase. So I want to share with you the setting of John chapter 4, and we see this in verses 1 through 3. The Bible says in John 4, verse 1, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, John the Baptist, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. So he was in the southern part of Israel, Judah, Judea, and he was departing again to go up north into Galilee. And we see something very interesting in verse number four. It says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Jesus is basically saying, I need to go through this place known as Samaria. Samaria is kind of in central Israel, and it's an area that was inhabited by people known as the Samaritans. What does all this mean? Is this, is, is this just kind of a passing thought that, that Jesus has to go through Samaria? It's very important. And it basically sets the stage for the rest of what we read in John chapter 4. The name Samaria likely meant kept or preserved in Hebrew, shamar. Shamar means to keep or to guard. And it was named after its founder, the founder of that area, in 1 Kings chapter 16. And it was the capital city of the northern kingdom known as Israel. According to biblical tradition, the region known as Samaria was captured by the Israelites from the Canaanites and was assigned to the tribe of Joseph. After the death of King Solomon, around 931 years before Jesus, the northern tribes, including those of Samaria, separated from the southern tribes and established the separate kingdom of Israel. Initially, its capital was at Tirzah until the time of King Omri, around 884 BC, who built the city Shomron, Samaria, and established it as its capital. Now, Samaria became a place that was despised by the Jewish people. It was despised so greatly that they did not want to travel even, the Jews didn't want to even travel through that place. Why? Well, the region was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And reportedly much of its population, much of the people of Samaria, were taken into captivity and deported by the Assyrians. In AD 6, the region became part of the Roman province of Judea after the death of King Herod the Great. Over time, the region has been controlled by numerous different civilizations, not only the Israelites, 
but also the Babylonians, the classical Persian Empire, the ancient Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Arabs, the Crusaders, and the Ottoman Turks. The Samaritans are an ethno-religious group named after and descended from ancient Semitic inhabitants of Samaria since the Assyrian exile of the Israelites. So the Samaritans, they were taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Many of them were. Religiously, the Samaritans are adherents of Samaritanism, which is kind of like Judaism, but it's, it's, it's an offshoot, and it doesn't really line up. It's an Abrahamic religion closely related to Judaism based on the Samaritan Torah. You see, they have their own Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Samaritans have their own version of this. They claim that their worship is the true religion of the ancient Israelites prior to when Judah was taken captive to Babylon. The Samaritans claim that their religion, Samaritanism, was preserved by those who remained in the land of Israel, as opposed to Judaism, which which they claim, the Samaritans claim, is related but altered and amended religion that was brought back by those returning from Babylon. It's commonly, though, inaccurately accepted that Samaritans are mainstream Jews. Do you get why the Jewish people did not want to have anything to do with the Samaritans? They didn't even want to go through that place. They were despised. There was a cultural and even racial stigma and hatred between the two groups. You see, the Jews, those in Judah, they looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds. Why? Well, when the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel took place in 722 BC, and many of the people of that region, that region of Samaria, when they were taken captive, what would commonly happen to those that were taken captive by another country? Well, there would be murder, there would be slavery, there would be rape, there would be human trafficking. And so the Jews looked at the people of Samaria as half-breeds that had been intermingled with the Assyrians, like they were half-Gentile. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. That's why sometimes I refer to myself as a Samaritan. Okay, I'm not from that region, but my dad is Jewish and my mom is not. And so being halfway in between, you're not Jewish enough for the Jewish people to accept you. And because you're part Jewish, lots of the non-Jews don't like you either. So the Samaritans were hated by both people groups. Now I want you to understand that the Samaritans, they even had their own temple. Where was the temple of the Jews? Where was the temple that God had instructed them to build? Well, it was in Jerusalem. But the Samaritans have their own temple based on their Torah that was built on Mount Gerizim in the middle of the 5th century BC. So like four to 500 years before Jesus, the Samaritans' temple was built on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And it was destroyed about 100 years before Jesus. Although their descendants, the descendants of the Samaritans, 
they still worship among its ruins. The ruins of the temple on Mount Gerizim, which, by the way, its ruins were there at the time of Jesus. The antagonism between the Samaritans and the Jews is important in understanding the New Testament stories of the Samaritan woman at the well, as well as the parable of the Good Samaritan. When you hear of the word Samaritan in the Bible, it's speaking of this people group from this region. Because of this stigma and this hatred between the two groups, the Jews would purposefully avoid traveling through Samaria, even though it's like smack between Judah and Galilee, they would avoid going through it purposefully because of the hatred that they had. That's why it's so crazy and so shocking that in verse 4 of John 4, Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. This is the scope of God's love. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, Jesus loves you and he died for you. Like John 3.16 that we read in our last episode, for God so loved the world. That's everybody. That's you, that's me, that's Jews, that's Gentiles, that's people that are halfway in between, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever, anybody, that shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you don't have to be a part of a certain group or a certain color or a certain culture in order to be saved, in order to be a believer. What we see here is Jesus crossing the cultural barrier, that racial, ethno-religious barrier that had been set up by the culture of the day. So in verse 5, then we read, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus gets to Samaria, he gets to the city of Sychar, he gets to Jacob's well, and he sits there at the well. And the Bible says it was about the sixth hour. Something that you need to understand about the Jewish reckoning of time, when it refers to the third hour, the fourth hour, the sixth hour, the tenth hour, that timing starts at sunrise which was generally around 6 a.m. So in a general sense, the timing of when Jesus goes to sit at this well, after walking all of this distance, is right around lunchtime, noon, 12 p.m. That's about the time that the sixth hour describes. And it says in verse 7, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now this is interesting. Because this is where everything just starts breaking open. Basically, the fact that Jesus was not going to discriminate against her because she was a Samaritan or that she was a woman. Now, why would she be going to this well in a dry desert region in the most sweltering, 
hot part of the day where the sun is just beating down right from above you? Well, it most likely has to do with her life, the things that she'd encountered in her life, the things that she had been through, the things that she had done that had caused the other women of that city to dislike her. She was avoiding people. You see, everybody would normally go to the well. The women would normally go to the well in the early hours of the morning before the heat of the sun had begun to bake everything. But she comes there in the heat of the day at noon because she's trying to avoid the stigma that she has on her life, not only being a Samaritan and a woman who were greatly degraded and looked down upon in Jesus' day, but she also had some moral issues and difficulties in her life that drove a wedge even greater between her and her own community. So Jesus says to her in verse 7, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat, to buy food. They went to look for some lunch for Jesus. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Can you understand why she says this to him? After we looked at this background of the great tension between these two people groups, she's like, how in the world are you even talking to me? See, Jesus was Jewish. And even though she is just meeting him just now, she knew he was Jewish by his appearance, by the things that he wore, by the way that he looked. She could tell that he was Jewish. I've been involved in Jewish ministry for the previous 10 years before we started doing digital evangelism. And you need to understand the Jewish context of our Bibles, the Jewish context of not only the Old Testament, what the Jewish people refer to as the Tanakh, but also the New Testament. Now, the majority of Jewish people out there that you would run into do not believe that the New Testament is the Word of God. Why? Well, because they reject Jesus, mostly because they've been taught to reject him by their rabbis and their parents. There's this big, huge misunderstanding of who Jesus really is. Lots of uh, Jewish people that I've encountered and that I've heard from, when they open the New Testament for the first time, they expect to read things about Santa Claus and the Pope, and they find neither. Instead, when you look through the New Testament, you see a Jewish context. Jesus was Jewish. All of his disciples were Jewish. The majority of the early church was like entirely Jewish, ethnically speaking, okay? I'm not saying that people should go back into the religion of Judaism. I'm saying that the church, uh, the early Christians, they had an ethno-religious heritage of being Jewish before they trusted Christ as their Savior. And after they trusted Christ as their Savior, guess what? They remained ethnically Jewish, even though they were no longer following the teachings of rabbinical Judaism. So once you become a believer in Jesus, you don't lose your ethnic heritage, okay? Those things don't matter in the eyes of God to give you a greater standing before God because you have a Jewish background or because you're white or because you're Middle Eastern, whatever it might be. Those things don't matter in the eyes of God, but you don't cease to be Jewish when you trust in Jesus. 
In fact, it's one of the most logical decisions that a Jewish person can make because Jesus is the long-prophesied Jewish Messiah. So the woman recognizes Jesus as being Jewish, and she says, how in the world are you talking to me, who is not only a Samaritan, but I'm a woman of Samaria? You see, back then, women were so degraded. Jesus oftentimes, in the interactions that he made with women, broke the cultural barriers and the stereotypes and and, and, and the accepted norms of the day to raise women up to a higher level than they were accepted as culturally in his day. So Jesus talks to her and he asks her for a drink. She's shocked that he as a Jewish man would even talk to her. And Jesus answered and said unto her in verse 10, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Now that might seem a little bit weird to somebody that has never heard that phrase before. But in Hebrew, the word living water, the phrase living water, is maim chaim. And it has to do with like a spring that's just springing up from the ground, moving on its own. Even though water by itself, you would expect to be stagnant and still. Water that's like a spring bubbling up from the ground is fresh water. It's not stagnant. It continues to be supplied. And Jesus is saying, if you would have known who I am that's talking to you right now, instead of me asking you for a drink of water from this well, you would be asking me for living water, which I am fully capable of giving to you. Now, what Jesus is speaking about is not like he has some kind of, you know, water backpack thing that she doesn't know about. It's a spiritual idea of having spiritual sustenance. The idea of um, water is where we get refreshed. And without water, we can't live. Like if you go for a certain number of days without water, you're going to get dehydrated and you're going to die. What Jesus is equating this living water to has to do with the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you, giving you this continual spring inside of joy, peace, security, rest, boldness, freedom, comfort, and help. This is what happens when we become spiritually alive, when we become born again, as we heard about in our previous episode. So the woman says to him in verse 11, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Where are you going to get this water from, Jesus? The well is deep. You don't have any kind of bucket to lower down into there. How are you going to do this? Verse 12, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well? and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. If you drink from this water, there's going to come a time when you want some more water. But then he says this, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. You're going to finally be satisfied. You're going to finally have fulfillment. And that's what Jesus offers through this 
living water analogy. You come to him and he can give you that final satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment that you can't find anywhere else in this entire world. You see, this is why people are always looking for the next fix. Even those that are rich and famous beyond our wildest dreams, they oftentimes end up committing suicide when they find out that that thing didn't satisfy. Jesus offers satisfaction. He offers a final and total and complete fulfillment that nothing else in this world can measure up to. And he offers everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She's like, I'm tired of coming to this well. If you have some kind of solution where I'm never going to be thirsty again, let me know. Because I want that thing so I don't have to have so I don't ever have to come here again looking for water. See, she was still in the physical realm with her mind, thinking about physical thirst. And Jesus saith unto her, verse 16, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. This is interesting. So just as Jesus did with Nicodemus, when Nicodemus asked him, how can you do all these things? Nobody can do these things except God be with him. And Jesus' response was, you need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. This woman's asking for this water. How do I get this water? And he says, go get your husband. You see, Jesus is God. Jesus knows everything. And he knew that she was in an immoral situation, that she had been a woman that had lived a promiscuous lifestyle with many men. He's basically calling out her sin at this point. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. She was living a lifestyle of going from one guy to the next to the next. And the guy that she was currently living with, she was not married to. That's why Jesus said, For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She knew that Jesus was telling the truth about her life. And then she says this, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Remember where I talked about how there was a temple there and it was destroyed about a hundred years before the time of Jesus? Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship, the temple in Jerusalem that was currently standing in Jesus' day. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria, nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You see, wherever you are in this world, I'm in America. I don't have to go all the way to Israel, to Jerusalem, to worship God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The hour is coming when you're not going to need to worship God in this mountain or at Jerusalem. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. This is where Jesus brings out this discrepancy between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. You see, Jesus is telling her, by the way, the Jews have the right Bible. The Jewish people have the right Torah. And they have the right location of where the temple is supposed to be. 
He says, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation comes through the Jewish people. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so he's telling her in a nice way, we're the right ones. But then he says in verse 23, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father seeketh such to worship him. God is seeking worshipers. And they're not going to have to worship him in some location, in some certain way that has all kinds of religious rites and rituals. But Jesus says that the true worshipers that worship the Father, they're going to worship him in two main ways. In spirit, as opposed to physically being in a certain location. They're going to worship him in spirit, and they're going to worship him in truth. Truth is important. Truth is not subjective. You don't have your own truth. I don't have mine. There is one truth, an absolute truth. Truth by its very nature is intrinsically absolute and objective. And Jesus says that those that worship the Father, the true worshipers, are going to worship him in in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's a spiritual action to worship God. It's not just going through some kind of motions superficially or physically, showing up to church or doing some kind of thing when your heart is not in it. That's what it means by in spirit. We need to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We need to be honest before him. If there's something between us and him, something that we've done wrong that we have not confessed or repented of as believers, and we try and go to worship him, that's not worshiping him in truth. So you need to be there. But your presence physically at like a worship service is not what God desires. What God desires is your heart. He desires your heart to be there. <laughs> he doesn't want just a body to be there to take up some space. He wants your heart. He wants your spirit to be connected with him in truth and honesty and righteousness. God is a spirit. Verse 24. The woman saith unto him, in verse 25, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. I spoke about this in chapter number one, that the word Messiah is the Hebrew equivalent to our English word Christ. I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. This is amazing. So the woman's talking to Jesus. She's talking to the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And she says, you know, I know that the Messiah is going to come and he's supposed to tell us everything. Listen to Jesus' response. I love this verse. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Jesus tells her, I am the Messiah. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. You see, they're all going nuts because Jesus is talking with a Samaritan. Not only a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman who were greatly degraded and looked down upon by the current culture and society. 
And they're just flabbergasted that Jesus is even giving her the time of day. He's talking to her and they're like, why is he doing this? Yet no man said, what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? This was their inward thoughts. Why is he talking to her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith unto the men, all the people of the city, come see a man which told me all things ever I did. Is this not the Christ? Jesus brought out her sin. He told her who she was. And he also told her who he was. And she realizes that this, this is the one. This is the one that connects us to God. This is the one that redeems us. This is the one that saves us and gives us a relationship with God that doesn't go away. This is the one that provides us with eternal life. Now, I don't know how greatly she grasped and understood all of those concepts, but she had enough faith to leave her water pots there, go running into the city and tell everybody that the Messiah is here and this is him and he told me everything that I ever did. Then they went out of the city, the men of the city, that she is telling them that the Messiah is here. They all came out of the city and came unto Jesus. And in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. You know, so like they went to get some food and they bring it to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, come on, you got to eat some food. And then Jesus says in verse 32, I have meat to eat that you know not of. I have food to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Did somebody bring him a bag of Burger King while we weren't looking? Did he eat without us? And Jesus says in verse 34, My meat or my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Jesus says, My food is what the will of God is for me to do. That's what I'm consumed with. That's what I am desiring. That's what I am focused on. And then he says in verse 35, Say not ye there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Jesus is using some symbolism here. He's not talking about... Uh, harvesting wheat or grain, he's talking about people. He's talking about how there is a harvest of people that are ready and open and searching for the truth. And our job as believers is to give them that truth. What is the harvest field that he is referring to? Is he referring to some cotton field or some, you know, different kind of field that's out in the distance? I believe he's referring to the city, all those people that the woman from the well, went and got and brought to Jesus. Jesus is saying that the, the harvest field is ready. It's not four months away. It's right now. He that reapeth receiveth wages, in verse 36, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth might rejoice together. He that plants and he that harvests could rejoice together. Sometimes our job as believers is just to sow the seed of the gospel, to plant the gospel in somebody's heart and life, to tell them about Jesus. We might not be the one to reap the harvest, to lead them to Christ, that they would truly accept Jesus as their Messiah and Savior, but we can give them a nugget of truth. We can sow that seed. We can plant that fruit. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. 
I sent you to reap whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. Those that have gone before us, preaching the gospel, living for Jesus, those are the ones that have prepared the ground for so many people that we encounter. You can't hardly go somewhere in this world that somebody has not heard the name of Jesus. Why? Because others have gone on before us and they have laid the groundwork. Many times we are not only the ones that sow the seed, that give gospel nuggets of truth to people, but we are the ones that many times have the opportunity to harvest what has already been planted, meaning bringing somebody to saving faith in Jesus. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. So many people in that city, they trusted that Jesus was the Savior. They believed on him because of the testimony of the woman. Don't ever underestimate the power of your testimony. If you know Jesus as your Savior, he has delivered you from so many things. And everybody has a different story. Sometimes it's good to share your story with others. Especially when you say, well, I don't know. I don't know what I should tell them. I'm not a good preacher. I don't know all of these things in the Bible. Just tell them your story. Tell them what Jesus did for you. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. Jesus stayed in that city to teach others. And many more believed because of his own word. And said to the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. Remember, he was heading from Judah all the way up to Galilee, and he went through Samaria. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Sometimes the hardest people to reach with the gospel are those that you grew up with, your family, and your friends. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. Remember that from chapter 2? And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum, in the north of Israel, in the region of Galilee, there's a, there's a nobleman, a guy that is high up, maybe politically, and his son is sick. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. There's so many people out there, especially on TikTok and Instagram, that are trying to get all kinds of notoriety for themselves. And lots of times they use sensationalistic kind of teaching that, you know, healings and miracles and signs and wonders, and the focus is off of the gospel. The focus is off of Jesus. The focus is on some kind of crazy miracle that they're trying to get people to follow them from seeing whatever they're teaching. 
When we see Jesus encounter people that have that type of mentality, he doesn't appreciate where they're coming from. In Jesus' eyes, in the eyes of God, believing, putting your faith in him, without seeing any kinds of signs or wonders, is far greater, far greater than those that desire to see a sign before they believe. So the nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. My child's going to die if you don't come here. And Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Jesus healed this nobleman's son without even being there. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And he was now going down. His servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend, when his son began to heal. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Which, remember, would be about one o'clock in the afternoon. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And himself believed, and his whole house This is, again, the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. So what do we take away from this passage? Jesus loves everybody. He died for everybody. He breaks through cultural and religious and ethnic barriers. That he is God. That he is the Messiah. And that he seeks for those to worship him in spirit and in truth, and that we shouldn't be seeking for a sign or wonders or miracles, but simply just to believe. In the next chapter, chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus leaving Galilee again to go back down to Jerusalem. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the New to Jesus podcast. You can go to our website, newtojesus.com. That's new, the number two, jesus.com. If you'd like to find me on social media, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at danielbergman99. And if you'd like to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, that helps us to get in front of more people to help them take their first steps as new believers in Jesus.